please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him." You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always makes lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you've heard the expression, a picture's worth a thousand words. One picture I've always enjoyed is a picture painted in the late 1800s by a man named Holman Hunt. It's entitled The Shadow of the Cross, and it certainly tells a story. In, in this picture, Jesus, a young Jesus, is standing in his carpenter shop. In fact, he's, he's stretching out in the carpenter shop, and yet the sunlight is coming through the carpenter shop, and the sunlight casts a shadow on the back wall, and the shadow is, of course, a cross. But on that shadow, when you look close, there's actually a, a wooden horizontal beam, and on that beam is his hammer that reminds us of the fateful hammer that would nail his own hands and feet to the cross. There, there, there are long carpenter nails hanging there, a reminder of the nails himself. Also in the picture over in the corner, there, there's a woman. You can't tell who it is, but you know it's Mary. And she's hovering over a box, probably the box that holds the gifts that the Magi had, had given. And, and she notices the shadow and she's clearly taken by it. Now, that picture, of course, 
is fictitious in and of itself. I mean, we don't know about that particular moment. We don't know that that happened. But, but, it, but it does point us to a theological reality. It reminds us that Jesus didn't just come to be a good carpenter. Jesus came on a mission. The shadow of the cross was always before Jesus. Jesus, as we already discussed in this series, came to fulfill the Old Testament. And more specifically, as we continue in this series that we've titled, Why Did Jesus Come to Die? We want to consider the reality that Jesus came to fulfill the entire sacrificial system. He came and died in order to fulfill both the priesthood and the sacrifice. So, we want to turn our attention to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and since we don't have time to just walk all the way through Leviticus and consider the whole sacrificial system, what I want to do is I want to just jump right to what is the most important day in the life of Israel, the day known as Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. See, this was the one day each year when all of the sins of all of the nation was atoned. And what I want to do is we're going to work through this passage fairly quickly, digging into a few points as we go, and then we'll turn our attention towards the end as to how Jesus is the fulfillment of the text. So turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16, and I do encourage you to turn over there with me in your Bibles. Leviticus chapter 16, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So, at the beginning of the Bible, chapter 16. And I'll begin by reading the first two verses here. Here we read, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that they may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The Lord begins this by reminding us of His holiness. Specifically, He wants His priests those serving before Him. He wants them to be crystal clear. They are never to take lightly coming into His presence. He he reminds them how He snuffed out the lives of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who had offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord. See, they had been flippant about God's holiness, and God wiped them out. On the heels of this reminder, The Lord tells Moses to remind Aaron that he is not to enter into the Holy of Holies whenever he wanted, or he too would die, just like his sons. Uh, The reason he's not to enter the Holy of Holies whenever he wants is because this is the place that houses the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The cover of the Ark is the, the mercy seat, the place where God appears in a cloud. And then in verses 3 through 5, He gives some instructions on when and how he is to enter the Holy of Holies. Look back at the text. We read, But in this way Aaron shall come into 
the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have a linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, the Hebrew is emphatic in verse 3. Only in this way do you enter, right? So he's giving some very specific instructions. And, and just think about the message being sent here. Again, he's, he's just reminded them that those who don't follow the prescribed ways of interacting with a holy God are dead. And he exhorted them, he's exhorting them that you don't just go sporting around in the holy of holies whenever you want. And so he says, only in this way do you enter. This is, this is the high priest. This is how he enters the holy of holies. With a bull for a sin offering for he and his family. With a ram for a burnt offering. And oh yeah, dressed in a very particular way, and that only after a very particular ceremonial washing. And why is that? Well, because even as the high priest, the one who is the intermediary in that time between God and man, even the high priest is a sinner, and he's entering into the presence of a holy God. I grew up in Clear Lake. That might mean nothing to many of you. For some of you who know the area, that's where NASA is, the Johnson Space Center. And growing up in Clear Lake, we would often have astronauts come visit our classes. Um, a lot of them, honestly, were just the dads of some of our fellow classmates. And, and, and I had one who, I just remember it because it was, it was so striking, it was so cool. This particular astronaut, he, he was on one of the shuttle missions, and he got to do a, quote, spacewalk, right? He got to go into outer space because he had to go work on something on the outside of the shuttle. And I remember him talking about the very particular way that he had to dress, the process that he had to go to. And in fact, it was so involved that, that he said he had to have several other people help him get into all of this gear and nothing could be left out. They had to follow the precise list given by NASA or he would die. Outer space would kill him. Also, too, here with the high priest, while it's not outer space that would kill him. He, he too had to follow very specific instructions when he came into the Holy of Holies or he would die. For a perfectly holy God had given him a very precise manner of how one is to enter into his presence. And, and I want you to take note of the clothes prescribed for the high priest on that day. I, I trust, you know, if you have a study Bible, you've probably seen pictures somewhere of high priestly garments. What, what I need you to be clear on is what's described here is not the lovely, flamboyant, colorful materials with the intricate embroidery and the gold jewelry that he normally wore that made him stand unique among other human beings. Not on this day. For this day, he would enter into the very presence of God. And so on this day... He would dress more like a slave than a priest. I like how Gordon Wenham says it in his commentary. He says, quote, 
Among his fellow men, his dignity as the great mediator between man and God is unsurpassed, and his splendid clothes draw attention to the glory of his office. But in the presence of God, even the high priest is stripped of all honor. He becomes simply the servant of the king of kings, whose true status is portrayed in the simplicity of his dress, end quote. God is holy, and even the high priest is sinful. And now this sinful priest is going to try to enter into the presence of God and make atonement both for himself and for the sinful people of Israel. And so let's move on in the narrative. Uh, In verses 6 through 10, what happens is we're given sort of an overview of the Day of Atonement. And then in verses 11 through 28, it, it circles back, and I'll kind of point this out as I read, but it circles back and then it details the day. And, and, and I want to read through this. This is a longer passage, but I know we don't often focus in Leviticus. And so I want to read through this and encourage you to follow along. So look with me at verses 6 through 28. Again, 6 through 10 is the overview. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for Azazel. It's a hard word to translate. It's the word we typically, uh, traditionally take a scapegoat. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, he's going to circle back and give more detail. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and because of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. When he has made an end for atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat." 
Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out of and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. Again, verses 6 through 10, sort of the basic order of the day's events, verses 11 through 28, fill out the details. And as you kind of study through this text, there's essentially four parts to the Day of Atonement. Consider each with me. First, Aaron offers the bull as a sin offering for himself and his family, or you could say he's got to offer this offering for himself and the other priests. And this is similar to the sin offering for the priest found in Leviticus 4, except for where the blood is sprinkled. Unlike all other sacrifices, the blood from the sin offerings on this particular day, on the Day of Atonement, are carried all the way into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the ark and in front of the mercy seat. Here again, God's holiness is displayed for the high priest enters beyond the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, and it is clear he's entering dangerous territory. He, he doesn't dare go waltzing in before the presence of our great holy God as if he had a right to be there. You may have heard the high priest has a rope tied around his ankle, so in case he dies in there, they can, they can drag him out. That's actually not true, right? That's urban legend at its worst or its best, however you want to describe it. Just search the Scriptures. That's not there. What is there is the fact that the text tells us that in order to protect himself from the wrath of God, the high priest was to prepare a censer full of hot coals from the altar and put in it a fine incense, and, and the smoke from the incense would, would, would cover the mercy seat so that the high priest would not be killed. So we don't need to make up urban legend to make the point as to how serious this moment was. No, the text itself does that with the sacrifices, the washings, the clothing, the incense. This was a serious moment. Leads to the second stage of the Day of Atonement where the priest takes the two live goats and he casts lots over them. You might think of rolling the dice to see how it lays, trusting God's sovereignty that it, you know, God would lead through that. Remember, there was one ram to be offered as a burnt offering for the people, 
and two goats for sin offerings. And here the two goats are brought before the high priest, and the high priest again casts lots over the two goats to decide which one would be slain as the sin offering and which one would become the scapegoat to bear the sins of the people outside of the camp. The third stage is the actual sacrifice of the goat that's the sin offering. This the priest did the same way he sacrificed the bull as a sin offering for himself and his own family. The goat's killed, the blood's taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled before the mercy seat. This blood's also sprinkled on the main altar of the burnt offering, just as he had done with the bull's blood. See, the, the, the handling of the blood of the goat and the bull demonstrates for us that this altar had to be cleansed of both the defilements of the people and the priests. The fourth stage of the Day of Atonement, no doubt the climax of the whole day, is, is the release of the scapegoat. Here the live goat is brought to Aaron, the high priest, and, and he places his hands on the head of this goat, and he confesses all of the sins of all of the people over this goat, and then they send it out into the wilderness. The symbolism here is amazing, right? The sanctuary has already been cleansed with blood of the sin offerings, and the sins of the people are now being carried away. This is the picture. They're now being carried away as far as possible. They're being carried outside the camp. The sins of the people are transferred over to this goat and carried away. What a wonderful picture they had. The scope of this sacrifice on this day is very important, for nothing rivals this in the Old Testament. Typically, Old Testament sacrifices were carried out in the courtyard of the tabernacle or temple or in the holy place. But here the sacrifice goes all the way into the innermost portion of the tabernacle or temple, the Holy of Holies, and it is not complete until the scapegoat makes his way outside the camp, which commentators argue underlines the comprehensive scope of the forgiveness of the day. Now, as yet we've not talked about why these sacrifices were needed. Why did Israel need the Day of Atonement? And while the answer is self-evident, it's also spelled out very clearly in the text. Leviticus 16, verses 16 and 21, you see four different words for sin. Verse 16, he says, He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities." Or in the context of the scapegoat in verse 21, he says, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and their transgressions with regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. So let's be clear. Sin is clearly the problem. The use of four separate words for sin points us to the broad spectrum of sin that needs atonement. No sin is left out here. Deliberate sin, unintentional sin. Conscious sin, unconscious sin. Visible sin, invisible sin. Sins of commission, sins of omission. All sin 
is in view here. Moreover, all, all four words are used in the plural, which probably points to the frequency and pervasiveness of the sin in the camp. Sin is a serious problem. It was for them now. It was for them back then. It is for us now. All of us have sinned, Romans 3.23. There's no getting around it. And sin is spiritual pollution in the camp. Sin separates human beings from a holy God, and it must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. A perfect, holy, righteous God must punish sin, which leads to the nature of the sacrifices themselves. Consider this for a minute. I want you to notice several things about the nature of these sacrifices. The first thing that we cannot miss here is that these are God-initiated. God took the initiative in the Day of Atonement. The people didn't come up with this idea on their own. They didn't say, hey, this sounds like a great idea. No, God came to Moses and gave the people these very specific commands. The next thing that we must see about the Day of Atonement is that blood was shed. The blood was very important, for it was sprinkled on and before the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies in the main altar. Closely tied to the idea that blood was shed is the fact that it was substitutionary. In other words, this animal served as a substitute for the people. I mean, the people of Israel were the ones who deserved to die for their own sins, right? And yet the priest lays his hand on the head of the goat and, and kills the goat, the first one. It dies in their place. Moreover, the people of Israel are the ones who should have been kicked out of the camp, right? They should have been banished from the presence of God, but it was in fact the scapegoat that the sins of the people are transferred to, and he's banished from the camp outside of the presence of God. I wonder how many of you have had the privilege of raising an animal specifically for slaughter. I had that privilege. I, when I was in high school, was part of something called FFA, Future Farmers of America. I absolutely loved it, and I got to raise different animals. My senior year of high school, I raised a pig. I knew the score, right? I, I named this pig Cash because that's what he was going to bring me. You know, if you raise a pig and they do well, they bring you cash. I got several thousand dollars from raising this pig when he, when he sold it at, at auction. But I can still tell you, even knowing the score, when it came to that moment, when I had to release this pig for slaughter, I can remember sitting in the pen and patting him on the head and looking in his eyes and knowing this thing's life is about to be snuffed out. You see, I think we, we miss some of the imagery of this idea of substitution that the original hearers would have truly understood. You see, they would have perhaps looked into the eyes of that goat they, they would have known this animal that did not sin was about to have its throat slit because of their sin. For them, the idea of substitution was a very concrete idea. Well, the last aspect we need to see regarding the nature of these sacrifices is they served as a means of atonement. 
Atonement can be broadly defined as God's work on behalf of sinners to reconcile them to Himself. There's an aspect in the word atonement of appeasing God's wrath, what we often refer to as propitiation. There's also this idea of the cleansing of sin, what is often referred to as expiation. Both of these come into play in this idea of atonement. The blood of the bulls and goats in some way, right, you can get to Romans 3 if we had time and talk about how they looked forward. We talked about that a bit last week. But in some way, these sacrifices made atonement for the people, and therefore, the result of this special day was that God could still dwell among them in the tabernacle. And the people were permitted to stay in the camp, which was in His presence. So, so, so that's sort of a 30,000-foot flyover of the Day of Atonement, but as we think about Leviticus, the priesthood, the sacrifices, specifically the Day of Atonement, I want us to think about what Hebrews 10 tells us. Hebrews 10 says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So the writer of Hebrews tells us the Day of Atonement was a shadow. It wasn't the reality that's to come. And we don't want to deal only in shadows. We want to deal in reality. I mean, imagine being a young child in the woods with your dad. Some of you don't need to imagine. Some of you are young kids. For the adults, uh, just consider being in a very dark, wooded area, a little bit of sunlight coming in. And you're walking with your dad, and he hears something, and he says, son, daughter, wait here. I'm going to go check this out, make sure everything's okay. And so he walks off. You're fine with that because he said so. He thought you were fine with it until he gets out of sight. You can no longer hear his feet. And you know, wait a minute, there's bears in here. There's mountain lions in here. There's bad stuff in here. And so... Now you're scared, and just about the time you're about to lose it, you see shadow coming towards you. You get excited. You're hopeful, right? Here comes Dad, maybe, but it's just a shadow. And so there's still a little bit of uncertainty, and you're looking closer, hoping for clarity, and then all of a sudden your hope turns to joy as Dad steps out of the shadow, and it's clear it's Dad, and it's clear all is well. The shadow was helpful, but when Dad stepped out from behind the shadow, it was far better, and you certainly no longer wanted just the shadow anymore. And see, up until Jesus' first coming, all people had was the shadow. But from the incarnation on, the Lord Jesus begins to step out of the shadow. He's the one who would ultimately, finally, save His people from their sins. So let's take a minute or two to consider some of the ways Jesus steps out from behind the shadow. Let's see how Jesus fulfills not only the high priesthood, right, but also the sacrifices. I want to focus on seven things. I assure you there's more, but seven will make the point. So seven things where we see Jesus step out of the shadow, see Him as the fulfillment. First, I want you to notice that as in the Day of Atonement, the death 
of Jesus was God-initiated. First John tells us, this is love, not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. We didn't love God. We were in rebellion against God. He loved us. He took the initiative. He dispatched His Son on a mission. Second, it's clear in the Day of Atonement that the priest had to offer sacrifices for themselves, right? Because they were sinners. Not so with our high priest. Scripture tells us that he was tempted in every single way, just like we were with real temptation, and yet he never sinned at one single point. Third, the book of Hebrews tells us that Aaron and the other high priests who came after him, they, that they had to enter into a man-made copy of the heavenly holy place and offer sacrifices again and again. The Day of Atonement had to happen year after year after year after year. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the heavenly one, to make atonement for sinners. And He offered His sacrifice once and for all and secured for those who believe in Him eternal redemption. Fourth, far different from all other priests who offered the blood of goats and bulls that Hebrews tells us could never ultimately take away sin and certainly could never cleanse the conscience. The Lord Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice, right? He is the high priest, and He offers the perfect sacrifice. He offered Himself perfect without blemish, and He was able to completely cleanse us from our sin and cleanse the conscience. Fifth, like the sin offering, Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. The sinner, us, we are clearly the ones who deserve punishment, but Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment we deserved. And like the scapegoat, Jesus' work on the cross removed the sin of those who believed. The sin was transferred to Jesus, or we might say, if we want to be real theological, it was imputed to Him. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums this up when it says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Think about that. He knew no sin. God made Him to be sin. Colossians 2 that we looked at last week speaks of our sin being nailed to the cross with Him. Now, a big difference between the work of Jesus and the work of the scapegoat is the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Again, that verse says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, listen, so that we, praise God, might become the righteousness of God in Him. Here we see what's often referred to as double imputation. And I know I'm using theological jargon, but it's important, folks. We want to know this. This is what's often referred to as double imputation, double transfer. Jesus received all of our sin. Our sin is credited to His account there on the cross, and He bore the punishment for that. But for those who are in Christ, that's not the end of the story. We receive His righteousness. That's how we can be the righteousness of God. So the result is there's this, there's this great exchange so that one day on Judgment Day, when the Father looks on us as sinners, He'll see Jesus. He'll see the righteousness of Christ and be completely thrilled with us. Praise God. Sixth, because of the Lord Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we can now have confidence 
to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Every believer now, let this sink in, has direct access to God. Think about the Day of Atonement. Think about the spacesuit. Think about everything he had to walk through, right? Every believer now has direct access to God. When Jesus was crucified, the Gospels tell us that the veil, the very veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the place where God dwells, is rent in two from top to bottom, symbolizing this glorious truth. Finally, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 tells us Quote, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever. Let these words sink in. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since, listen, since he ever lives not yesterday, not before you fell on your face. He ever lives, ever lives to make intercession for them. Praise God. Jesus is our eternal high priest. He ever lives to intercede for you if you're in Christ. And if we take 1 John 2 verses 1 through 2 and Hebrews 7 and put those together, we can be clear Jesus, as he advocates before the Father, advocates with his own blood. He pleads the merit of his own blood. So, how does this apply to our lives today? Is this just a theological workshop on that was then, this is now? Well, once again, I think the writer of Hebrews helps us. In Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, he says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Did you hear that? Full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Make no bones about it. Jesus, as the fulfillment of the priesthood and the sacrifices, has a huge application for your life and mine every single day. Now, let me start with unbelievers. You might be here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ This has a huge application for you. You, like the rest of us, were created by God. You were created with a purpose. You know, a lot of people say, I'm searching in life for my purpose. Well, you have a purpose. All of our purpose is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. The problem is, all of us are sinners. You say, well, I don't like that word. Why would you call me a sinner? Well, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm standing here preaching as the chief of sinners, and you're standing, sitting around sinners all over this room. God created us to worship Him and enjoy Him forever, we said, thank you very little, I'll do what I good and well please, and that is called sin. And our sin separated us from our greatest good. Our sin separated us from fellowship with God, our Maker. And yet God in His kindness sent His Son to be our great high priest like we've been talking about. 
our intermediary, right? And Jesus came as our great high priest and sacrificed himself for any who would believe. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I would ask you, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from humbling yourself, repenting of your sin, and following Jesus even now? I would plead with you to look to him. What about for the Christian? What about application for us? Jesus is priest and sacrifice has huge implications. Brothers and sisters, no doubt when we think about our lives before Christ, we would be thankful that Jesus was our great high priest and perfect sacrifice, right? That got us in. Without that, we understand no chance. But how does that affect our everyday living? Should it? Or is it all good? It sort of got us in, and we no longer need a high priest, Well, there's a hundred different ways we could look at how important this is. Let me just consider one as we wrap up. Consider how we deal with sin on this side of the cross. Consider how we deal with sin as Christians. We could, could, not should, but we could take sort of the bootstrapper approach, right? By this sort of gird up our loins struggling with a particular area. Maybe I read some self-help books on, on, on these areas, and I say, doggone it, that's it. Tired of falling into the same thing over and over again, starting today. I'm going to beat this thing. I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and I'm going to root this out. I'm going to tell myself, self, don't be angry. Self, stop lusting, or whatever the particular sin you're wrestling with is. And maybe, just maybe, For a time, you might think, man, I got this whipped. And in the process, you're a Christian, so you no doubt give credit to God. Thanks, God, for helping me to to whip that sin. And then when you're not thinking about it anymore, wham! Fall flat on your face again. Why? Why? Well, lots of things we could say there. But for one thing, the bootstrapper approach does not take sin seriously enough. You can't whip your own sin by simply deciding enough's enough and now you're going to take action. But that that is often our tendency, mostly because we're sick and tired of falling into the same thing again. Or perhaps we're embarrassed that we've fallen into the same thing again. But that's not how we fight and find some level of victory over particular sins. No, we, we, we fight. We see growth when we first come to grips with how incredibly heinous our sin really is. We must take an honest look at our sin and see that our sins are a direct affront to God. Metaphorically speaking, you might not like to hear this, but metaphorically speaking, they're sort of on par with spitting in the face of the very one who saved us. And so we take that seriously. And yet we don't stop there. The point is not to move into a spiritual pity party, or worse yet, move into some sort of self-flagellation, some sort of self-hate. That's not the point. No, we take it seriously, and then we come and fall on our face before our great high priest, and we confess our sin, just like we talked about last week. And because of what Jesus has done, those in Christ can and should, as the writer of Hebrews says, approach the throne of grace 
with confidence, knowing that he hears our prayers and that the Lord Jesus stands before the Father as our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. And just consider for a moment how Jesus serves as our high priest, our advocate. Does he stand before the Father and say, look at old Chris down there. Poor, poor guy. You know, he's having, a, he's having a tough week, tough day. I, Father, I think we should let him off the hook. You know, there's the, there's the nurture part, the nature part. He's just, you know, dude in a fallen world trying to make the best he can. And after all, we're not perfect. No. He pleads the merit of his blood. He says, I died for that sin. And that one, and that one, and that one. So as the Father looks on us, he sees the blood of Jesus. He looks on us. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west before a holy God. But see, if we don't remember how bad our sin is, then that priestly work doesn't appear as all that wonderful to us. It might, God forbid, become mundane. We may even be inclined to presume upon God's grace trample it underfoot. But when we understand how great our sin is, how great the cost was, we understand how amazing our great high priest is, then we stand amazed by his grace. Our, our, our burden is lifted. And let me tell you in that moment, we want nothing more than to live for Christ out of a heart of thanksgiving. And therefore, we move forward. We praise God. We stand and we want nothing more than our lives to be that of a living sacrifice for the one who's been so kind to us. Not in any way to pay him back. We could never do that and we should never try. But as a result of what he's done, we want to glorify him with our lives. That, brothers and sisters, is a much better approach than the bootstrapper approach. That's how we want to confront our sin. So let me end with this on a personal note. What sins are you currently wrestling with that you need to bring before a great high priest? What sins might you be secretly nurturing this morning? Perhaps you've been harboring unforgiveness. Somebody's done something really ugly to you, and you're harboring unforgiveness. Please know, biblically speaking, that's sin. It's rebellion. Jesus speaks very clearly to that. Perhaps you're harboring lust, maybe selfishness, judgmentalism, anger, pride, gluttony, a lack of love for those that Jesus died for. The list could go on and on. I encourage you, I encourage all of us, I exhort me, take time this week, read the Word, Ponder your sin. And when you see sin in your life, notice I didn't say if, when you see sin in your life, let me also plead with you, don't pacify yourself and tell yourself, well, it's just a little outburst of anger. It's just how I'm wired. If they hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this. Don't tell yourself, it's just a little lust. I'm not even sure that's a sin anymore in American Christianity. 
Brothers and sisters, don't pacify yourself and let that sin just keep eating at you. As we see our sin and ponder its seriousness, we want to take it before our great high priest. We want to confess it, find forgiveness that only comes from him. Be reminded he died for that sin. His blood covered that sin. Be reminded that he is pleading the merit of his blood before the Father and therefore as far as the east is from the west. Your sins have been forgiven. Brothers and sisters, let us praise God that we have a great high priest. Let us trust him. Let us come to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for ordaining that we gather and hear regular reminders of your unchanging truths from your holy and inspired word. Father, even now as we stand and sing in response, Father, may we delight in the reality that for those of us in Christ, we have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Oh, we thank you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.